Good morning. Morning. Let's begin class today with prayer. Father in heaven, um, we'll thank you for the rain. Um, but we've had enough, so we'd like to see some sunshine. Um, we invite your presence in with us today as we study your word, study your principles and your methods. Um, enlighten us, make them known to us so that we can know you better and share what we know with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's lesson is lesson 13. It's entitled Women and Wine. Saturday's memory text is from Proverbs 31. Verses 2 through 4, I looked at it in the message translation, and it says, O son of mine, what can you be thinking of? Child whom I bore, the son I dedicated to God, don't dissipate your virility on fortune-hunting women, promiscuous women who shipwreck leaders. Leaders can't afford to make fools of themselves, gulping wine and swilling beer. Lest hungover, they don't know right from wrong, and the people who depend on them are hurt. Do we see any of this happening today, maybe in the news? Do we see any leaders making fools of themselves? Um, And do we see wine and women generally a factor in in those instances? Well, they got rid of the cigarettes advertising on TV, so now they've switched over to the much wine and alcohol. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, just some of the, the images and the concepts that are are uh, pretty common in the advertisement of of alcohol and what it represents. Um, So Saturday's lesson points out that there's a shift that takes place over the course of the book of Proverbs. It starts out with the teachings of a father, and it ends up here in chapter 31 with the teachings of a mother. Solomon's mother warns her son against the two most serious threats to the king which are wine and women. Do we have any thoughts on why maybe these particular thoughts came from Solomon's mother? Any special insight she might have had along with her father into this situation? I think it sounded familiar to them. We know who Solomon's mother and father were, right? So yeah, I mean, I think they they had some up-close personal experience with the ability of wine and women, poor judgment, to take down a kingdom. And I think this association of wine and women was deliberate. Both have a very powerful influences on men, particularly men in positions of power. And although finding a virtuous woman might be beneficial, there's really no upside to the influence of alcohol. So the initial Advice from the father, introductory advice concerning spiritual acquisition of wisdom is now concluded uh, with the mother's chapters, and those are more concerning applying that spiritual wisdom in real life. Because spiritual principles taught by the father mean nothing if the mother's practical advice is not followed. Have you found this to be true in your, in your own experience? Where you learn concepts, you may acquire that knowledge, but if there is no practical application, think about our, our three-pronged approach of scriptural, scientific, and experiential uh, prongs. If you're missing that experience, there's no practical application. It ends up being very weak. It ends up being just head knowledge. 
It's the difference uh, between knowing about something or knowing how to do something or really knowing someone. So this week we're going to dive deeper into this practical advice that uh, is given presumably by Solomon's mother. I, I found it interesting. Two of the most serious things would be wine and women for a mm-hmm. kingdom, for a king to look out for. Right. I mean, you're managing a kingdom. An entire empire. Oh, but yet the mother says two of the most serious are women and wine. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I and I mean, think about, I don't have text, but think about the number of times you hear a king offering a woman anything you want up to half my kingdom. It's more than once. So, yeah, I mean, I think there was special insight into that ability, particularly of a, an unvirtuous woman. You had to put on the line. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. That's one we're gonna talk about a couple of others that we can think of where this had an impact. Um, let's look at Sunday's lesson. It's entitled A Toast to Life. So in many cultures, drinking alcohol is associated with all aspects of living a good life. Living the good life. So as mom said, think about the advertisements you see maybe during an average football game telecast or the print ads you might see in a single issue of Sports Illustrated. What, is, what are the consistent themes? What do you see consistently depicted in ads promoting alcohol? It's fun. Party. Good times. Good friends. Are the people ugly? Correct. I don't see anybody with jaundice. I don't see anybody looking like cirrhosis is a problem. I mean, we're talking beautiful people. But they say in moderation. In moderation, of course. Yes. Uh, yeah, attractive. Usually couples. It's usually a little sexual innuendo. Intonation in the ads. Fun, party atmosphere, good friends, good food, good times. Do they usually look destitute, poor, (laughs) impoverished? Generally pretty affluent. Living it up. There's always a celebration. Their team always wins. We toast at weddings, toast at birthdays, toast on New Year's. We toast to celebrate pretty much anything. We wish each other a long, healthy life when, as the quarterly says, ironically, each toast, each glass may very well work to negatively impact health and shorten life. And of course, this is always disguised in these beautifully designed bottles, labels, slick marketing campaigns, clever commercials and songs. I mean, Budweiser during the Super Bowl did a lost puppy. That doesn't have anything to do with alcohol, but it's memorable. There's even some scientific findings out there that can help comfort drinkers into thinking that alcohol is in any way good for them. You've heard those, right? That a glass of wine a day, good for the heart. Yeah. 
So Solomon had warned of some of these deceptions previously back in chapter 23, verses 30 through 35. He says, who keeps getting beat up for no reason at all? Whose eyes are bleary and bloodshot? It's those who spend the night with a bottle for whom drinking is serious business. Don't judge wine by its label or its bouquet or its full-bodied flavor. Judge it rather by the hangover it leaves you with, the splitting headache, the queasy stomach. Do you really prefer seeing double with your speech all slurred, reeling and seasick, drunk as a sailor? They hit me, you'll say, but it didn't hurt. They beat on me, but I didn't feel a thing. When I'm sober enough to manage it, bring me another drink. (laughs) This warning is reiterated in verses 4 and 5 that we just read in Saturday's memory text. But it's directed specifically to kings and those in leadership here. Obviously, there are applications to each one of us as followers of Christ, but maybe some special responsibility to those in positions of power or leadership. One of the founders of the Adventist Church had this to say on the subject. Intemperate persons should not, by the vote of the people, be placed in positions of trust. Their influence corrupts others, and grave responsibilities are involved. With brain and nerve narcotized by tobacco and stimulus, they make a law of their own nature. And when the immediate influence is gone, there is a collapse. Frequently, human life is hanging in the balance. On the decision of those in these positions of trust depends life and liberty or bondage and despair. How necessary that all who take part in these transactions should be those who are proved, those of self-culture, those of honesty and truth, of staunch integrity, who will spurn a bribe, who will not allow their judgment or convictions of right to be swerved by partiality or prejudice. Only men and women of strict temperance and integrity should be admitted to our legislative halls and chosen to preside in our courts of justice. Property, reputation, and even life itself are insecure when left to the judgment of those who are intemperate and immoral. How many innocent persons have been condemned to death How many more have been robbed of all their earthly possessions by the injustice of drinking jurors, lawyers, witnesses, and even judges? And these are the men who are running our government and making the rules and laying down laws that have no business at all having a big banquet beforehand with the alcohol flowing freely. In many cases, I mean, I don't, I don't see temperance as being many candidates' platforms. You see them using that as, as a why to vote for me reason? Yes, Wendell. Is, is temperance a word that has changed in meaning like other words we have? Um, because when I read that, I'm not listening only for alcohol. I'm listening for other things. Right. And... Um, I will have to say that many times my judgment has been swayed because I've been up too late at night doing other things that I should have been doing. Yes. And um, it's easy to pick at things that we don't do Mm -hmm. as being the evils of of society. And yet... I think that's true. um, And there is the scientific evidence that sleep deprivation has very similar symptoms in judgment and response time and things like that, as does 
alcoholism or being uh, I stay up and drunk. My favorite show, I'm probably just as impaired as someone who's had two beverages or more. Very possibly true. So let's talk about, I mean, effects of alcohol can be bad enough for common folks. For a king or someone in power or a leadership role, the results can be disastrous. What's at stake is the capacity to discern between right and wrong through clear, undistorted judgment. And I think Dr. Moses' point is well made. Whatever might be impairing that judgment or impacting the ability to uh, discern right from wrong can be a problem. A drunk king or judge or dictator may, quote, forget the law, may not correctly distinguish between what is right and wrong, and may subsequently issue distorted judgments, declaring the guilty to be innocent and the innocent guilty. An example of this, I thought, was uh, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. You remember that story? They were Israelite priests. Um, They got drunk. They had trouble performing the sacrificial ceremony according to God's instructions. Um, Mrs. White says, when indulging their appetite for wine and while under its exciting stimulus, their reason was clouded and they could not discern the difference between the sacred and the common. Contrary to God's express direction, they dishonored him by offering common instead of sacred fire. I mean, those results were pretty dramatic for those two. So can we think of any other biblical examples in which alcohol or drunkenness brought about terrible, long-lasting results? Noah Noah and his sons. Not a pretty picture. After uh, the one person, (laughs) the one family um, that, what's that? Lot. Lot. Lot and his daughters. Nabal. Yes, that's a good one. I didn't have that one. Any others you can think of? Don't assume this can happen only if the leader is physically drunk at decision-making time. Do a little research into the physiological effects of alcohol, and it reveals that It can cloud the areas of the brain where moral thinking is done, where moral decisions are made. Heavy drinking reduces brain cell production in the hippocampus, which is part of the limbic system, governed self-control. Ironically, the very self-control the person would need to stop drinking. Memory, emotional response are affected. Interestingly enough, though, however, after a one-week period of abstinence, New brain cell production can begin in that area. Point is, if you destroy enough brain cells with alcohol use, your judgment can be impaired even when you're sober. This prohibition of wine drinking and alcohol consumption has to do with pretty basic wisdom, science, physiology. All three prongs of the integrative evidence-based approach are covered. And as such, they should apply to every human being. A lot of natural law concepts at work in determining positive-negative effects of alcohol. So the pink box at the bottom of Sunday's lesson asks, who hasn't seen the devastating effects of alcohol in so many lives? I gathered up some Google statistics on alcohol use and abuse. 
And I'm guessing many of those we could validate just by a show of hands in this room. But here's what I found. Alcohol is the number one drug problem in America. Americans spend $197 million on alcohol every day. In the United States, nearly 14 million adults, one out of every 13, abuse alcohol or have an alcoholism problem. But since an alcoholic spouse, children, and family suffer also due to the alcoholic's condition, there are an estimated 40 to 50 million people in the country affected by alcoholism. Several million more partake in risky alcohol consumption that could potentially lead to abuse. And over 3 million American teenagers aged 14 to 17 have an alcohol problem already. Compared to adult drinkers who start drinking around the age of 21, young people who begin drinking before the age of 15 are twice as likely to abuse alcohol and four times more likely to develop a dependence on the drug. From a personal standpoint, I was one of 10 surviving children, and out of those 10, only three weren't addicted to alcohol in some way. And in, in my younger years, I started to hate it. Mm -hmm. There is definitely a genetic component as well to being predisposed to addiction issues. 43% um, of American adults, almost half of American adults, have been exposed to the problem of alcoholism either in their own family, something they grew up with, or something they experienced with a spouse or a partner. Today, it is estimated that 6.6 .6 million children under the age of 18 live with a parent who struggles with alcoholism. So that's an amazing level of impact, the rippling effects. More on these ripple effects. So not included in, in those statistics are alcohol's other victims. Those that are affected by alcohol, even though they are not alcoholics, and may not even drink at all. So consider that alcohol is a contributing factor in the following, 73% of all felonies, three-quarters of all felonies, 73% of child-beating cases, 41% of rape cases, 81% of wife-battering cases, 72% of stabbings, and 83% of all homicides. In the United States, a person is killed in an alcohol-related car accident every 30 minutes, every single day. I mean, to me, those are staggering. Yes? I'd like to uh, update a couple of your statistics. Please. Just for Tennessee. Uh, Tennessee and 17 other states, uh, alcohol is not the primary addiction drug of choice anymore. Um, it's now switched to prescription drug. Right. Uh, specifically opiates. Mm. Um, and in Tennessee in 2013, there were more people that died of prescription drug overdose wow. than died on Tennessee highways. Interesting. So next time you see the, the little thing over the freeway that tells you how many people died on Tennessee, yeah. we're one of 17 states where that's true, where more people died from prescription drug overdose. But we're not talking about illegal drugs. We're exactly. Prescription drug overdose. Shocking. So, so that's that's the thing that's really on the rise now, and, and alcohol has probably remained more stable. Yeah. 
But it seems like the driving factor of escape or, you know what I mean? They're trying to get away from what's actually going on in their lives. And people choose different methods, but it seems like the motivation is similar. There's a statistic I can't remember of the percent of deaths in car wrecks mm-hmm. that are alcohol-related. Yeah. You know, that someone with alcohol is either cause of whatever, but the percent of deaths related to alcohol-related accidents is very, very high. It's very high. I, I saw that one in, in my studies. It's also that didn't, they didn't have automobiles back when we're giving these warnings, probably, <laughs> right? I wonder what else would have uh, exactly shown up. I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking a chariot being driven by someone intoxicated could be rather detrimental. But I, I mean, as Tina said, it's interesting. Wine and women, of all the things that we could be advised against, these two seem to be paramount. And I found I found another quote from Mrs. White that said this not just about alcohol's other victims, but about our ability to influence others. The influence of an ill-regulated family is widespread and disastrous to all society. It accumulates in a tide of evil that affects families, communities, and governments. It is impossible for any of us to live in such a way that we shall not cast an influence in the world. No member of the family can enclose himself within himself where other members of the family shall not feel his influence and spirit. The very expression of the countenance has an influence for good or evil. His spirit, his words, his actions, his attitude toward others are unmistakable. If he is living in selfishness, he surrounds his soul with a malarious atmosphere. While if he is filled with the love of Christ, he will manifest courtesy, kindness, tender regard for the feelings of others, and will communicate to his associates by his acts of love a tender, grateful, happy feeling. It will be made manifest that he is living for Jesus and daily learning lessons at his feet, receiving his light and his peace. He will be able to say to the Lord, Thy gentleness gentleness has made me great. That's from the Adventist home. I thought that was interesting where you hear, I don't know, I hear some people claim if they're they're going to drink they're going to drink at home they're not going to drive it's it's a victimless crime you know what i mean they're not they're not influencing others and i mean i i don't know i think that's naive to think that that whatever we're doing whatever we're projecting doesn't have an impact on others particularly those close to us in our family let's look at monday's lesson where we shift from toasting life to toasting death Monday's lesson looks at Proverbs 31, 6 and 7 and attempts to define what Solomon's motherly, mother's advice means when she writes, Let beer be for those who are perishing, wine for those who are in anguish. Let, the, let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. In the message translation, the, the text reads, Use wine and beer only as sedatives to kill the pain and dull the ache of the terminally ill, for whom life is a living death. I mean, this what isn't this the reason why many folks drink or take drugs to forget and escape their situation, their poverty, their misery, other facets in their in their lives that they can't cope with? 
The quarterly appears to reject those interpretations by pointing out that elsewhere in Proverbs, the use of the expression, those who are perishing, repeatedly refers to the wicked. And this may be the intended reference here as well. Supported by the seeming foolishness of giving something inherently unhealthy to someone who is already in poor health and dying. Not to mention the reasons why you would not give a depressant to someone who is already depressed. Did everyone read the powerful quote from Mrs. White at the bottom of Monday's lesson? This is what Tina was referring to. Satan gathered the fallen angels together to devise some way of doing the most possible evil to the human family. One proposition after another was made till finally Satan himself thought of a plan. He would take the fruit of the vine, also wheat and other things given by God as food and would convert them into poisons, which would ruin man's physical, mental and moral powers and so overcome the senses that Satan should have full control under the influence of liquor Men would be led to commit crimes of all kind. Through perverted appetite, the world would be made corrupt. By leading men to drink alcohol, Satan would cause them to descend lower and lower in the scale. Isn't that amazing? Of all the things that he could come up with, that was the ultimate. It's easy to see why Satan chose this method of harming the human family when you look at the statistics that we just reviewed. All right. Let's move to a lighter note in Tuesday's lesson. We're going to talk about a virtuous woman, presumably the opposite of one that could bring down a kingdom. So we have to remember the plight of women and the culture. Bathsheba had no ability to resist when David sent for her. Yes. Perhaps taking her own life. Absolutely. Women were treated in such a way, and kings had total authority and power. Yes. And it wasn't what they were doing. They were expending their own selfishness. It was not a case of these wild uh, women seducing them. In many cases, not. Yes. Their own, own things. So I think women get a bad rap when back during that time... Right. They had no power whatsoever. Oh, I know, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Just how, to me, the, the contrast or the shockingness of this chapter has always been in light of women's position during biblical times. This was not a description of most of the women that we, we know about in, in the Bible. So would somebody be willing to read uh, this familiar description of the virtuous woman? It's found in verses 10 through 31 of Proverbs 31. So if somebody has that, go ahead and read. A capable wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and, see, and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from far away. She rises while it is still night and provides food for her household and tasks for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. How far are we going? To the end. Okay. 
she girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid for her household when it snows, for all her household are clothed in crimson. She makes herself coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the city gates, taking his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She supplies a merchant with sashes. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her happy, her husband too, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her a share in the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the city gates. That sounds like quite a woman, doesn't it? She's a multitasker. For sure. I can see maybe somebody having some of those attributes, but 100%. That's my question. Has anybody thought that this sounds like an amazing ideal and maybe only applies to married females? I always kind of did. Like an unreachable standard. It sounds like she could even be a pastor. I don't know. Um, the quarterly suggests there are many indications that the author may be writing about broader concepts than just the ultimate wife. So there are many prior passages in Proverbs that give us good reason to think that a virtuous woman analogy may represent wisdom itself, wisdom personified. The quarterly states that chapter 31 pictures wisdom not as some lofty, unreachable ideal, but as a very practical and approachable woman who could become our life companion. I still think it sounds like a lofty and unreachable ideal. Maybe I'm the only one. But uh, to shift the paradigm to see true practical wisdom being described here makes the concept a little easier to digest and absorb. This lesson points out that the, this last teaching about wisdom is delivered through a beautiful acrostic poem. Am I the only one that had to look that up? Because I did. An acrostic poem is a type of poetry where the, either the first, the last, or other letters in a line spell out a particular word or phrase. So in this situation, each verse begins with a Hebrew letter following alphabetic order, and it's similar to the Book of Lamentations and many of the Psalms. That was something new to me. But I thought that was interesting. So we want to take a look at Proverbs 8. If you have your Bibles, check out Proverbs 8, which is really the passage on wisdom. And we're going to compare it to the facets of the virtuous woman that we have described here in Proverbs 31. And if you're looking at Tuesday's, is, are we on Tuesday? The lesson 
shows some of the, the similarities and the, the verses where they can be found. So both wisdom and this virtuous woman, prized wife, are precious and they're worth finding. They're both worth more than rubies. They both provide food and sustenance. They're both strong. They're both wise. And they're both worthy of praise. So really tons of strong correlations between those two concepts where the virtuous woman could be referring to wisdom. Yes, ma'am. I have a question about Mm -hmm. the verse that was read earlier. It says that um, in verse 15, she rises while it is still dark to lay out the day's food for the family and plan the day's work for her servant girls. We didn't touch on that. Interesting. She had help. <laughs> so she had some help. Right. So I See, want to ask I, this lady over here if she caught that verse. <laughs> I mean, she's amazing in every way. <laughs> the fact that she has help makes her even more amazing to well, me. Well, verse 23, her husband is respected because of her and has chosen to sit with the leaders of her country. So that's where it comes behind every successful man is a woman pushing. Right. You, you look at another scenario, she could have had five husbands and 20 children. Potentially. <laughs> Hence the help. Really. So amassing information, acquiring knowledge... I'd say is easier than ever in this information age, but does that necessarily equate to wisdom? We have mentioned before in this class, knowledge can be defined as knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing that you shouldn't put it in a fruit salad. And there's very little evidence to suggest that this abundance of information we have available has not made this generation any wiser than any previous ones. The quote from Martin Luther King Jr. on that lesson says, we have guided missiles and misguided men. That's kind of where we've ended up here. So let's look at Wednesday's lesson. Speaking of some of the help that she has, it's entitled, She Works. This virtuous woman is not lazy, very active, works hard in many areas. And this industrious quality is mentioned throughout the book of Proverbs when contrasting the wise versus the foolish. Some of those examples, Proverbs 6, 6 reads, You lazy fool, look at an ant. Watch it closely. Let it teach you a thing or two. Nobody has to tell it what to do. All summer it stores up food. At harvest it stockpiles provisions. So how long are you going to laze around doing nothing? How long before you get out of bed? A nap here, a nap there, a day off here, a day off there. Sit back, take it easy. Do you know what comes next? Just this. You can look forward to a dirt poor life. Poverty, your permanent house guest. Do do we see more and more of that today? Although I'm not sure that that poverty is associated with it. We've, We've arranged some things economically where folks can not work and still eat. So contrast that description of a lazy fool with our virtuous woman. She hunts down bargains. She knits. She sews. She travels. She organizes her home. 
She gives her servants work to do. She feeds her family, saves her money, buys and sells property, plants a garden, helps the poor, designs and sells clothes. And verse 11 says she does all this work with her hands willingly. The lesson makes an interesting observation that this very spiritual person is never depicted praying or meditating, but rather is shown to be an efficient and productive woman, more like Martha versus Mary in the Gospels. I thought that was interesting. To be spiritual does not mean we should be idle, all under the pretext that we are too concerned with highly important religious issues and thus have no time to take care of trivial matters. Anybody remember the parable of the talents in Luke 16 and how rewarded the industrious person was? Also here, we talk about, has it struck anyone ever, this description of this woman, how odd it is when contrasting the position of women in biblical times. I mean, women were really low on the scale. Maybe just above slaves. Yes, Wendell. We had exceptions to that. Um, Lydia, mm-hmm. well known as a, a well-known merchant. Of cloth. Other things. Yes. Um, Timothy's mother must have been very wealthy. I mean, she had a home in which the entire church was meeting. Right. And so, um, structurally, it was very male-dominated society, but there are exceptions listed in in um, the Bible. For sure. To say that there were opportunities of some form, although, you know, I'm not a scholar of that. Right. For sure. But particularly, I would say, for unmarried women, for whatever reason, they were either single, they were divorced, or widowed. If they'd lost their tie to a male in the society, they had had nothing. Um, Like I said, just above a slave and were sort of treated as property. Also married women who couldn't have children weren't worth much in the society, valueless. Um, They could not own property. There was no equal rights amendment. They couldn't vote. No equal pay act. But that really sounds like the opposite of what is being described here in chapter 31. I mean, this woman sounds like she rocks. She's working it, literally, day and night. She has many responsibilities, gives him her constant attention. Um, And I'm not sure, we think this is exactly how we in society are teaching girls to measure, value their worth today. I mean, what sort of role models, what sort of standards are they being given? What are they taught is the most important. Their looks, their outward appearance, bodies, paramount, above all, they're objectified. Such vain, empty, shallow, superficial markers, the magazine images they're inundated with are just sick. You're right, they're sick. And they're complete Photoshop fantasy. So I'm encouraged to see an increasing number of these fallacies being exposed. If you see some of the unretouched photos being published these days, really gives you some insight into the magic. Um, but it's going to take a whole lot more, 
I think, to change or undo some of the unhealthy feelings of inadequacy that have been caused by unattainable pictures of perfection. Not unless we don't change something dramatically. So don't you wish we could develop a meaningful way to teach the concepts of this chapter that charm can mislead, beauty soon fades, but this woman's true beauty is found in her character and how those facets of character are made manifest in her life and her works. Throughout the entire book, readers have been warned of ungodly, strange women whose seductive powers cause ruin. This final portrait is in contrast to those women and describe a feminine role model of wisdom and godly values. This amazing, talented, industrious, successful woman who develops a virtuous character and who really knows God that's what matters. And she is to be praised. Is that what men are looking for today? Don't you hear, and if you were to ask a young person, would you rather have a virtuous woman or a woman with a nice career that can support you? Mm-hmm. What are they going to go for? I think that's true. I mean, nowadays we're teaching our people, our young people, that, you know, get a good career. Yeah. You need then. It's the most important. Don't worry about making bread or sewing your own clothes. You won't be doing that anymore. Yeah. Plant a garden. No, just get a good career. I think you have to look at the time you live in. I mean, to be honest, if you don't have a good job, then you're not going to be able to get the things that you want. You're not going to get, you're not going to find the person that you may or may not fall in love with that's going to help you get through these situations in time. I mean, I'm a young person, so you know these things are on a daily basis for me, where I'm looking, you know, what do I want out of life? Who am I going to? What decisions am I making to help me push forward and to, you know, strengthen my faith in God and to find someone else to share that with would be great, but it's it's really, really hard to find. Yes. Not just for young people. <laughs> FYI. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I think that's well said. And I think that what that what we're teaching, it's it's for sure the distortion of what we're teaching is not just on on the girl side. I mean, society is so polluted with the music and everything that we listen to. I mean, it's just we're not going to get anywhere doing. I mean, it's really hard for us as Christians to put. I mean, I mean, I've been shut down by so many people. Like when it comes to girls and stuff, you, yeah. you tell them that you're, you know, you're a Christian and you want to do, you know, and you're, they're just like, what? I don't want anything. Right. I don't want. I don't want to go there and do that. Yeah. Just because of what they're taught with all the different stuff that goes on, and you know, back in. You know, in the twenties and stuff, you you know, you couldn't even see, and you can you can look anywhere and see a naked lady unless it was, you know, on a on a flash card. Or, right. You, know, they had them you had to go looking for it. Yeah. It didn't find you. It. Now it's just all everywhere. Everywhere. Inundated. Oh, I can't imagine. We don't even teach how neck anymore. No. I mean, things that are really important. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, it hasn't been. It's for me. It's been frighteningly long ago, and it hasn't been that long ago in how things have changed. Even from from when I was growing up, I can't imagine. We used to believe that you can't have all the things that you really have to have unless both of you work. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's it's everything though. Everything about earthly society, earthly kingdoms, is in direct opposition to God's kingdom values. You know what I mean? Whether it's economics, whether it's virtues, whether it's activities. Almost, you can almost bet that if the world is pushing for it, we should be doing the opposite, you know. And that's, we're talking about this character 
this woman of character, that's what's to be praised. This character that we're developing while here on, wor- on earth is the one we will take into all eternity. That's been one of the most staggering concepts I've learned in this class. Because, I mean, I was raised with the typical, the penal substitution theory that there is no victory. That we're not overcoming while here on earth. We're waiting for the transformation moment at the resurrection when all of a sudden we become who we're supposed to be. That's, that's not what I believe anymore. So I work in the computer technology field, so I really like Tim's hardware software analogy that he uses when describing character development. Are you all familiar with this? He equates our physical body, our mortal body, to the hardware of a computer. So the physical case, the laptop, the electronics, the components inside, those, I got to tell you, are uh, deteriorating, degrading constantly, literally breaking down while we're here on this earth. But in contrast, our characters, our personalities, the essence of who we are, those are being formed and developed and built and cultivated while we're here on this earth. Hopefully perfected during our time on this earth. So all the while we're alive and our, this character development is taking place, our character software is being constantly backed up on heavenly servers. And the fact that we now have lots of servers and software in the cloud just makes this a better analogy. So they're out in the cloud. We could use the current example in the news about Mrs. Clinton's email server, her hardware and software, but that's probably a whole other class. Um, so anyway, when we die, when we're buried, our hardware gets buried in the ground. But our software, our character software, stays on these servers in heaven exactly as it was when we took our last breath. Then, at the resurrection, when we get our new hardware, our new immortal hardware, that character is downloaded onto the new, so- new hardware just as it was. For all eternity. So I give you an idea of how critically important it is to develop a character here that is fit for eternity. I mean, it was, it was to be Adam and Eve's main purpose. One of the reasons for the, gar- the tree in the garden was for the development of their character. It was one of the perfectly accomplished goals of Christ during his time on, his ler- on the earth. He developed a perfect character. It was made perfect. So how much more important must it be for us to do in this life? Mrs. White says, A great name among men is as letters traced in sand, but a spotless character will endure to all eternity. Whatever the desire of your heart is today, that's what it will be when you die. And when Jesus, you'll wake up with that. Correct. So if your desire of your heart today is to be more important in the world... That's all it's going to be. Exactly. Exactly. So to me, that, that just brings in the concepts that we've learned here where we don't, in my, in my view, cheapen the sacrifice and the work that Christ did to develop a healing remedy. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about stamping books. I'm talking about transformational 
character change, heart change. And I mean, anybody that, that has experienced it, you have to know when you see something in yourself or something comes out of you that you know is so otherworldly, is not you, is not from you, you know that it has to be the working of the Holy Spirit. And that, to me, that is, that's way more powerful than a legal pardon or a legal reckoning. That is literal victory that we have access to in our daily lives. All right, we're going to try to wrap up here with Thursday's lesson. Talking about she cares. So the lesson asks, what other important characteristics do we see in this woman, particularly in verses 26 through 31? She speaks with wisdom and gives faithful instruction. She orders the affairs of her household and is never idle. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband praises her and the whole city honors her. She's known for her wisdom and her kindness, and they are related. The quarterly argues that kindness is another form of wisdom, especially when we understand that wisdom isn't just what we know, but what we say and do and how we say and do it. Take a look at the third paragraph in Thursday's lesson. It says, Notice, too, the phrase, quote, the law of kindness. That is, kindness is not just some fleeting attribute that escapes from her mouth now and then. It is a law, a principle of her very existence. How powerful it would be if the law of kindness were to guide all that came out of our mouths. Yes. Kindness in the, um, some translations of the Bible the law of kindness is another term used for grace. Mm. And it's interesting that um, if we look at grace as being a legal remedy versus grace as being an attribute of an individual right. that is played out in their actions and mm-hmm. who they are. And it's just the fact that this is the very same term. No, I think that's interesting. And it sounds suspiciously here like the author has stumbled upon some natural law concepts where he figures out that this law of kindness, it's a principle. It's part of her very existence. Another quote from Mrs. White says, kindness and love and courtesy are the marks of the Christian. In our association with each other, let it ever be remembered that there are chapters in the experience of others that are sealed from mortal eyes. There are sad histories that are written in the books of heaven, but are sacredly guarded from prying eyes. There stand registered long, hard battles with trying circumstances arising in the very homes that day by day sap the courage, the faith, the confidence, until very manhood seems to fall to ruins. But Jesus knows it all and he never forgets. To such, words of kindness and of affection are welcomed as the smile of angels. A strong, helpful grasp of the hand of a true friend is worth more than gold and silver. The true, honest expression of a sister or brother or friend, given in genuine simplicity, has power to open the doors of hearts which need the fragrance of Christ-like words and the simple, delicate touch of the spirit of Christ's love. 
Isn't that powerful? And don't you know when you come in contact with people every day that there's always a story there that we know nothing about? We have no idea what's going on behind behind the scenes and what impact a kind word could have. Yes, Wendell. Did I hear that correctly, that um, Christ will guard those secrets and will not expose them in eternity? Sacredly guarded from prying eyes. Where's this? So... So that, you know, many people are afraid of the magic erase mm-hmm. of all events for fear that they'll be exposed in eternity. Right. And we're told... And that sounds like a, a good news uh, yes. for those who are afraid. I mean, what are we told the judgment is going to be? The judgment is going to be the revelation of every secret deed in front of everybody. I don't think that's true. This is found in My Life Today, page 178. Read that for me again. Okay. Kindness and love and courtesy are the marks of the Christian. In our association... I'm sorry to interrupt, but also it's... If they're like Christ, this is also what Christ is like. Yes. And what did he do when he bent down and knelt and wrote in the sand? Incredible. Incredible. In our association with each other, let it ever be remembered that there are chapters in the experience of others that are sealed from mortal eyes. There are sad histories that are written in the books of heaven but are sacredly guarded from prying eyes. Even in prayer meeting. And y'all know what I mean. Yeah, I find that that powerful. What I'm hearing in, in this lesson today is that in... Promoting this level of character, this level of of spiritual development, there is a world, in fact, a universal vision of what's good and what's right. Right. And if we operate on visions that are too small. Narrow. Narrow. Yeah. we'll We'll never, you know, find the higher levels. So these levels... You know, speaking like of the virtuous woman mm-hmm. who can get there. Well, I mean, it, it's it's the work of a lifetime. You know, exactly. It's also a vision that gives you strength, that gives you purpose, that gives you, you know, a place to go. Right. And don't we typically operate on very narrow, small, myopic vision? Yeah. And I mean, just opening up that this concept is not talking about a specific woman, a specific wife, it's way more universal than that. And it, it is the work of a life. I, I'm not sure that description, I'm not sure I'll achieve in this lifetime. That may require some of the immortal to be mixed with the immortal. Yes. There's an ancient group called the Jews. Yes. And still to this day, the more uh, conservative of them, when they bring in the Sabbath, right. this is what they read. And they honor the, the yes. mother and the home. It was different than the people around in other nations. Right. They really did hold the mother in high esteem. Yes. And I I had another quote. I'll put it in the notes. I didn't have it here, but it's another quote from Mrs. White, specifically on mothers. And I certainly do not argue that point, that the critical importance of the mother in the home and how they should be called blessed by their children and they should be praised by their husbands, not just on a Hallmark day in May, you know, but for reals. Um, do we have any other comments? We're about, we're about out of time. Thank you very much for...
participating in today's lesson. Let's close with prayer. Father God, um, we felt your presence here today, and, and we, want, uh, we want to feel that throughout the week. Uh, be close to us. Continue to bless this class. Uh, bless this ministry. Bless Tim as he, as he does outreach. And Father, we are seeing tidbits of this message spread. We are seeing tangible evidence um, that your character of love is, is making inroads maybe into some of the most staunch places. And Father, we're grateful for that. And we ask that, that you would empower us to, to help broaden this mission and hasten your return. In your name we pray, amen.